0: you all would stand with me as we read God's word this morning. Our passage this morning is going to come from Luke chapter 7. Uh, It's the whole chapter, so verses 1 through 50. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, his disciples and a great crowd went with him and he drew near to the gate of the town behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and considerable crowd from the town was with her and when the lord saw her he had compassion on her and said to her do not weep then he came up and touched the, the bier, and the bear stood still and he said young man i say to you arise And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon I have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them love will love him more? Simon answered the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt and he said to him you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman he said to Simon do you see this woman? I entered your house you gave me no water for my feet but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let me pray. Lord, you, you were not the Messiah that was often expected. you are a savior who is far greater. Lord, our wisdom, our way of thinking, our, the way we would do things, it falls far short of your purposes, far short of your wisdom and your plan. Lord, I pray that as we consider your, your word this morning, that we would set aside our wisdom, that we would instead trust in you and in your wisdom, God, in your ways. Lord, help us to do that in the many areas of our life in which we often want to replace our way of doing things instead of your way of doing things. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Jesus told his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. And then he died on the cross and he left. And we've been praying for this prayer for 2,000 years. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And yet we look around the world, and we see sinful people doing terrible things. We see things that seem like they're right often are declared wrong, and things that are wrong are often declared right. On top of all of this, there are disasters like deadly earthquakes, Where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? And this has led some to say things like, well, perhaps Jesus, you know, he had good teaching, uh, but he must not be the king or else all this wouldn't be happening. Or Jesus must not have meant that his kingdom was really coming, you know, it hasn't really come. It must be that maybe when he returns, you know, then we'll see the fire and the brimstone, right, to consume all these terrible sinners. But Jesus' words are clear. The kingdom is here. It is fulfilled now. How can we say he's a good teacher if this is the core of his message, the good news of the kingdom? How can we call him a good teacher if he got it wrong? And at the core of this passage, at the core of, our, of our, our passage for this morning, of this chapter of Luke, is this interaction with John the Baptist, who, if you remember, is sitting in prison. If you remember back to chapter 3, he had been preaching about the coming one, how the coming one would bring fire. He would bring a winnowing fork. Then it John, as he calls people to repentance, he calls King Herod to repentance. The king who is over the people, the king himself, and he says, You should repent, King Herod. And he gets thrown in prison for it. And in our passage today, we see John the Baptist. Pop up again. We haven't seen him for a few chapters. And he asks, Are you the one who is to come? He asks, yes, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And this word for come, it's all over today's passage. The root word translated that way, translated as the word to come. It's not only translated that way, it's translated comes, came, went. It's, it's, you don't recognize it in the English, but it's all over. Our passage today. Are you the one who is to come? And everywhere in this passage, it describes what Jesus, his his movements as coming. Luke is saying to us, he's saying to his original audience, the coming one, he comes. And his kingdom comes with him. So what I'm going to attempt to argue this morning is that despite how it looks at times, despite the opinions of many people, the kingdom has come, it is inaugurated in Christ, yet it's not done coming. Why would Jesus do it that way? Why wouldn't he at his first here on earth, have just finished the job, if you will. I want you to see that even though it may defy our human wisdom, the kingdom comes in greater ways. The kingdom comes in greater ways. And we're going to look at the text in three parts, each giving us a principle for how the kingdom comes. First, we're going to look at the two miracles that set up the conversation with John, and we're going to see that the kingdom comes unexpectedly. And in a sense, that unexpected nature of the kingdom is going to carry on throughout our passage. The kingdom comes unexpectedly. Second, in the interaction with John and his disciples, we're going to see that the kingdom comes gradually. And finally, in the interaction with the Pharisee and a woman, we're going to see that the kingdom comes fruitfully. It comes unexpectedly, it comes gradually, and it comes fruitfully. First, the kingdom comes unexpectedly. There's, our text starts with these two miracles. They almost seem like you know, if, you, if you're just reading through the book of Luke and you come across this, you know, it's like, oh, these are just kind of two things that happen, you know? But in fact, I think Luke is intentionally putting them here for a reason, a very specific reason. So I want to zoom out for a second. I want you to understand the greater context. If you remember a number of weeks ago when Jesus gave his first sermon in Luke 4, and the people in his own hometown reject him what did he bring up at that point? What did he, what did he remind them of? He, re, he reminded them of two particular events in the Old Testament. Elisha's healing of Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile, and Elijah going to a widow whose son he raised from the dead. Do you remember that? So Elisha and Elijah brought God's word to those who would have been thought to be outside the kingdom, and in doing so, brought a taste of the kingdom to them. The healing of Naaman and then the the raising from the dead the son of this widow. And it foreshadowed the kingdom that would come to the whole world. And we see now that this unexpected twist... In Elisha and Elijah's ministry was greater. And so we see in Christ as well. That Christ's unexpected kingdom is greater. And it's greater in two ways. It's greater because it comes to the unworthy. And it's greater because it comes with authority. When it comes to the unworthy. First, this Gentile centurion has a sick servant. And at first he sends these uh, Jewish leaders to Jesus and these Jewish leaders they begin to tell Jesus just how worthy this centurion is. He's so worthy for you to come and to do this for him Jesus he he fears God and he he single-handedly uh, paid for our synagogue to be built he of anyone he is uh, even though he's a Gentile, he's worthy for you to do this. It's very You know, in our human logic, it's how we would do things, right? Try to convince someone. But the centurion sends some other delegates. I I kind of think that maybe the centurion uh, realized the kinds of things that these Jewish elders would say. I think he realized that it was the wrong way to approach the situation. And so he sends some delegates with a very specific message from him. And what's that message? He says, I'm not worthy for you to even enter my house. Jesus, I am not worthy for you to even walk into my house, let alone heal my servant. He sends them with a message that is the exact opposite of what the Jewish elders are saying. They're saying, oh, he's so worthy. He's so worthy because he's done all these things. He's so worthy. He's so worthy. But the centurion understands, I am not worthy. Yes, I did all those things. No, I am not worthy. I am unworthy. And this is no false humility. This is not like, you know, what we do sometimes where we, we act like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so terrible. But really what we're saying is like, pay attention to me, you know. No, the life of his servant is at stake. Or consider the widow in the next scene, this funeral procession. It would have been just hours after uh, her son died, this widow, who has no one else to take care of her. You know, today, if someone dies, you know, it's a, a number of days before we have a funeral and, you know, the whole the whole deal. But they, they, You don't wait around back in the first century. You don't wait around with you know a dead body. You got a couple hours. You got to get that thing in the ground. And so, literally, as this funeral procession is going on, and, and Jesus just happens to come across it, this widow would have been weeping at the thought that her son just died, a matter of hours ago, weeping at the realization. That her son's death means that she is destitute. She has no means to provide for herself, and she has no family to help her. Jesus knows this. He sees this. What causes Jesus to stop? The widow's so great. Jesus really needed that son to live a few years longer. What causes Jesus to stop and touch what would have been to him unclean? You understand, in Jewish religion, you don't touch a dead thing. You don't stop and touch what a corpse is being carried on. And yet Jesus stops and he reaches his hand out and he touches. What causes him to stop? Is it not his deep compassion at the sight and the sound of her weeping? Is it not his mercy at the realization of her grave situation? See, the, the centurion understand what the, understood what the Jews did not. They thought that the kingdom comes to those who are worthy of it. They thought, like the Jews in Elijah and Elisha's day, that the kingdom should come to those who are worthy of it. We're Jews. We deserve it because we're God's people. centurion understood that no one is worthy of it. Could we ever do enough? What rebel could ever make themselves worthy enough to come into the throne room of the king? If a king has a kingdom and, and there is a known rebel who spent their life rebelling, what king is going to allow that rebel to come into his throne room? No. He wouldn't let him get within a hundred yards of him. He would send his servants to throw him into prison, right? And yet Jesus reaches out and touches. that which is unworthy, because of his great compassion. Listen, if you're not a Christian. You to understand what makes you worthy. What would make you worthy? You must, you must know that you have not even lived up to your own standards for yourself, right? That even your, your own conscience tells you, I have not always done what I knew was the right thing to do. let alone God's standard for you. You must know that you're in a grave situation. You must know that your worthiness it's a corpse. It's the corpse in the funeral procession. And you're the widow with Nothing with no options, destitute, unless Christ reaches out and touches. The kingdom comes in another way. It comes with authority as well. When Jesus raises the dead man, everyone is seized with fear. The authority and power that this kingdom has is is an authority and power that is over life and death itself. People didn't, don't declare, listen, this is how amazing what Christ did uh, is. They don't declare that the dead man rises. What do they declare? A great prophet has arisen among us. The first words out of their mouth isn't, a dead man has arisen among us. They recognize that what's truly amazing is a great prophet has has arisen among them, and Jesus indeed is a a greater prophet than ever before, but he isn't even merely a prophet. He is so much more. He brings the message, and the message is him. He's the king. The point is plain, in the centurion's words, after telling Jesus that he need not physically come to his house, he says in verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The authority of a king is great when he is there, physically. Physically. But there is a way in which it is more remarkable where he is not, and yet his will is done. When it is seen in the obedience of his people and the power that he has given to them to bring about his commands, Jesus does not need to be physically present for his kingdom to come. Too many of us sit back thinking one day, one day Jesus will return, right? One day Jesus will return and then He'll really bring His kingdom. But after the resurrection, Jesus said He has all authority. And to whom does He now say, come and go? He gives His church authority. And He commissions them. And so I'll ask you, When Jesus says, go, do you go? When Jesus says, come, do you come? When Jesus says, do this, do you do this, church? Or do you think in your wisdom, you know a better way? His physical presence isn't needed because it is seen and heard and experienced in his church and his people. The body of Christ. We are to bring about the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. And that will have real, tangible effects in the world. We cry. We cry out so often, church. uh, uh, So many of us, we, we cry out, the world is so evil. And it is. And it is. In so many ways. But we fail to recognize. That Christ has called us to bring his kingdom, to push out the evil, and to bring the gospel. Now you might think, well, that's a silly plan, Jesus. Why didn't you just make that happen? Why would you leave this church to do that? These flawed humans that mess everything up all the time. Why would you do that? How could that possibly be better? How could that be greater? But I want to remind you of Naaman. If you have time, go back and read the story. Elisha did not physically come to Naaman. Naaman, he was a leper, a different country, a Gentile. He heard one of his servants was from Israel, and and the servant said, Hey, you know, if, if if my master, Naaman, if you would just, you know, go... And see this man. He could heal you. And so Naaman goes to the king, and the king sends a letter to the king of Israel and says, I'm sending my servant, would you heal him? And the king of Israel goes, oh my goodness, this this guy's trying to start a war with me. How am I going to heal a leper? Elisha says, calm down. Calm down. I got you. And what does Elisha do? Elisha does not go to Naaman. Elisha sends his servants to Naaman before Naaman ever arise and, and tell, they tell Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan River. Wash seven times in the Jordan River and you will be restored. And what was Naaman's response? Do you remember? He says this, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Far? Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I have washed in them and been cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. How often, friends, does God call us to do something? Does God say, church, do this? Church, go. And we think, that makes no sense. Wouldn't it have been better to do it this other way instead? Shouldn't we come out and wave our hand over the place and God does this thing? This all seems too simple. Isn't there better waters that we could use? Can't possibly be just simply proclaiming the gospel. It can't possibly be being godly mothers and fathers and raising our kids and sharing the gospel with them. It can't possibly be going to work every day to the glory of God and doing it to Christ Jesus himself. It can't possibly be just coming to church and hearing God's word read and hearing God's word preached and worshiping and singing God's word and praying God's word. That can't possibly get the job done. They can't possibly sanctify us. We need some sort of other plan with bells and whistles and a light show. That'll move people. That'll disciple people. This all seems too ordinary. But Naaman's servant pleads with him and says, If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, just watch and be cleansed? Friends, be wary of Naaman's wisdom. Be wary of Naaman's wisdom. Christ can't possibly bring people to salvation in that way? It can't possibly be simply wash and be cleansed. Christ can't possibly sanctify me in that way. Don't I have to do these other things? Don't we have to do these, we have to have these other bells and whistles with it? No. Jesus says, no, simply be washed. Wash and be cleansed. So Christ's kingdom comes unexpectedly. Second, it comes gradually comes gradually. Jesus is declared a great prophet by John, or he's, rather he's declared a great prophet by the people of Nan. but John asks a different question. He asks, "Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? Are you the one who is to come or are you just a prophet of the one who is to come? In other words, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds, "Look, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are even raised, the poor of good news preached to them." All these things he quoted from Isaiah back in that first sermon. You see Luke is tying all the threads together as he writes. But why why would someone why would why would John still uh, Wonder? Or why would John's disciples still wonder? Is this the one who is to come? It's not about what he is doing, it's about what he's not doing yet. You see, John is asking, Are you the one who is to come? Because he would have expected the coming one to do two things. Two things that were foretold in the Old Testament, two things that were fore- foretold in that passage in Isaiah. The first one is to bring deliverance, right? The blind see, the poor having the gospel preached to them, all those things. And Jesus is saying, see, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. But the second thing that John would have expected is for the Messiah to bring judgment, to judge the evildoers. And you can understand that's very personal, very close-to-home thing for John, who sits in prison, for declaring the truth to Herod. Jesus, I'm in prison for calling out an unrighteous king who's sleeping with his brother's wife, when he's supposed to have some leadership over those in charge of your temple, of your dwelling place, God. And this un. This uncleanliness is coming into it. And I'm in prison for speaking the truth. Will you not do something about this? Shouldn't Messiah take care of this if his kingdom is coming to replace these evil kingdoms of the world? And Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You see, you either receive the king and his authority to bring the kingdom in his way, or you're offended by how he does it. And that's not a good thing. You see, ironically, Jesus explains what's happening by explaining who John is. You see, John's disciples leave. Jesus turns to the crowd. He begins to talk about John. He begins to explain who John is. Hey, you all went out to see him? You know he spoke the truth? You know he wasn't swayed by the spirit of the age? or by his own conveniences, or what have you. And Jesus brings, in verse 27, he brings two Old Testament passages together. But the major one that he is quoting here is Malachi 3, 1 and 2. And I want to read this to you. This is what it says in Malachi. Jesus, this is what Jesus is, is thinking of and what he wants his audience to think, to think of when he talks about John. It says in Malachi, it says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This is the passage that John the Baptist quoted referred to when he was preaching about Jesus coming. So John expects Jesus to bring judgment on those who are breaking covenant and defiling the temple and to cleanse the place that God, where God dwells. But it's not happening the way he thought. In reality, Jesus is doing far more First, Jesus is giving an opportunity for people to repent and believe. Jesus is making a new covenant. Malachi says, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. But Jesus is making a new covenant. And he'll make it in his once and for all time sacrifice in order that he can build a new temple with Jesus himself as the cornerstone of that temple. You see, John is concerned about cleansing this physical temple, right? A structure. And Jesus says, no, actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to destroy that temple. I'm going to build a new temple that I cleanse. You, church, and I'm cleansing your hearts by what I'm going to do on the cross. But they don't get it, which this is an offense to many, And yet the one who is least in that kingdom is greater than John himself. You see, he's not merely tossing out the old in God's wisdom and compassion. He is not merely casting out the unrighteous, but he's giving them every opportunity. He is bringing in the new kingdom, a new covenant, a new people. And he's doing it gradually. And one day he will bring judgment. We know That in AD 70, the judgment of God comes on Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed, and literally not one stone is left on top of another, that entire system is decimated, never in 2,000 years to come back. Jesus says, no, I died, that's the last sacrifice that's needed. I am wiping this away. And all of those who are part of that system, who refuse Christ, he wipes away with them. But he gives them an opportunity, he gives them a chance to hear the gospel. And many too. We're told, Luke writes in Acts chapter 2, that even on the first day that Peter preaches that gospel, 3,000 come to know the Lord. this is far better. It's far greater. So we should trust God according to His Word, and we should declare God just in His wisdom. First, the kingdom comes gradually, so we trust God according to His Word. You see, everything that Jesus is doing and saying is, is to prove that God's Word is true. The miracles, they're not just miracles for miracles' sake. The point is to prove God's Word. That's why they mimic what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And that's why Jesus quotes Scripture here. And we know from this side of history, we can look back and we can see that what John could not see, as I said, that Jesus fulfilled God's Word and did it in even greater ways. That he did come to cleanse the temple. The temple became us. That he showed himself to be the true and pure temple of God's presence and through his death and resurrection, he united us to him as a temple to the Lord and he is cleansing us by his sanctifying power. Do you realize, here's why. Here's what we miss when we want God to come in judgment. We miss that he would judge you. We miss that you're still full of evil and wickedness and that he's sanctifying you. But even that, even that, he's so merciful. He's, he's, he doesn't have to, but he's mercifully willing to do this gradually so that we would not be consumed by the fire, but the fire would purify us instead. Have you ever thought about that? That if on the day that you came to faith in Christ, that if the Spirit came and said, okay, okay, Cody, here's all the things, all the ways that you're sinful. Here's all the ways that you've been rejecting Christ. Here's all the things that you need to change. Ah, you would, you'd be crushed under the weight of it. Yet, that's not how the Spirit works. Gradually, He purifies us. Gradually, He works those things out. Listen, if we know that His Word says His mission from the start is to fill the world with the knowledge of the glory of God and to create, recreate all things, if we've seen that His his way of sanctifying us is mercifully gradual in us, if we look around the world at the last 2,000 years of the world's history and we see the gospel going forth and changing things, can we not trust His word that He will do it, that His kingdom will come, and that the way that He brings His kingdom is greater. And it's greater because it's wiser. And so we should declare God just in his wisdom. Jesus will one day return and he will judge those who reject him. But right now, the call is to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. And the crowds, they did that. They did that at the preaching of John. And so they declared Jesus just in that moment. He is a good and righteous judge, not that they have the authority to decide it, not that they're, you know, the jury over Jesus and going, oh, Jesus, yes, you're right. No, but that they rightly recognize the truth of what Jesus is saying. As Romans 3, 26 tells us, he did it this way to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That Christ, the way that he brought the kingdom, the way that he brought the gospel, makes him both a just judge, rightly judging those who ought to be judged, and yet also justifies us, who should be condemned, and yet are not. The Pharisees, they've rejected the purposes of God. They rejected the wisdom of God. They thought their self-righteousness was good enough. They thought they could be worthy of they did not understand from by faith what the centurion understood. They are what Jesus calls this generation, which would have been a backhanded reference to the generation who came out of Egypt, who got delivered, and yet, by the time they got to the promised land, had already stopped trusting God. And Jesus says, you're like children who go into the marketplace to sing, But you don't like the tune that John sang. You don't like the tune that Jesus is singing because really you want whatever tune you are singing to be the tune that everyone dances to. But you're not the king and you don't get to decide. Wisdom, he says, will be justified by her children. Worldly wisdom is short-sighted. God's wisdom has a longer view. Worldly wisdom wants it now. God's wisdom brings it gradually. Worldly wisdom is fearful. God's wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Listen, the kingdom will come to everyone. I want you to understand that. It will come to everyone. And every knee will bow. The difference will be what happens next for you. We think we want it catastrophically, right? Jesus just bam, bring it right now. When we look back in the pages of the Old Testament, we see that God was willing to let his own people suffer in Egypt for 400 years until the sins of the Amorites were filled. And God in his mercy is patient with sinners. He's willing to bear that patience on his own shoulders on the cross. And while the first generation hesitated at the opportunity to enter into the promised land because their eyes were set on the giants that were ahead of of them, Rahab, when they finally did enter, had minutes to act in faith. And she did because she had eternity in her eyes and in her heart. She was wisdom's child. And that generation didn't want to be used by God or see God's power firsthand. Why can't God just eradicate the people first and then we'll just walk into an empty land? But but Rahab risked her life because she saw the God who held all life in his hands. And she had heard, she had but just heard of what happened in Egypt that generation couldn't see how God was giving them vineyards that they didn't plant and towns that they didn't build because they didn't trust God's word and God's wisdom. And so they died in the wilderness because of it. But those who have faith, to those who have faith, God's goodness is far more fruitful. Wisdom is justified in our children. And we get to see right here in our passage what that child looks like. So we turn to the last part of Luke 7, we see that the kingdom comes fruitfully and we get a real life example of wisdom's child compared to this generation and its children. And we see that the kingdom comes fruitfully in capturing our devotion and it comes fruitfully in granting our forgiveness. You see, one of the Pharisees, Simon, he asks Jesus to come to his house to eat and Jesus comes, it says, but who does Jesus come for? But I want you to ask yourself, does he come for Simon? A, A woman who is a sinner shows up, hears that Jesus is there. I like to think that perhaps she was in the crowd as Jesus was standing and talking about John the Baptist. She saw Jesus walk off and she runs home. She gets her alabaster jar of ointment. What would have been her life savings, this would have been an incredible amount of money. It'd be like if you had a safe at home full of gold instead of, instead of a savings account, and you just hoisted that thing on your back and brought it. And she comes into the house, and it says that the woman is weeping, and the term here for weeping is, is a term that's used for a rain shower. It's like she has not just like got wet eyes, You know, tears are just streaming down her face enough that she could clean Jesus' feet with them. Is she weeping with sadness, with sorrow, with regret? Doesn't say for sure, but I think in the context, I I, I tend not to think so. I think she's coming humbly but boldly, and he is permitting her to do what she is doing. She's responding as someone who is begging for mercy, as someone who knows that they have received that mercy. In my mind, I'm convinced that she's overwhelmed because by faith she understands that she's been forgiven. Just as the centurion had understood. And so tears come down to rinse his feet, and she takes her own hair and she wipes the feet dry and clean, and she kisses the feet, and she pours this massively expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. And Simon in his head, you know, draws this conclusion. Well, this this Jesus that I invited, he must not be a prophet. Earlier, we had heard someone say he's a great prophet. And Simon says, no, he must not be a prophet in his head because if he was a prophet, he would know she's a sinner and not let her touch him. But what does Jesus do? Jesus knows what he's thinking. Consider that contrast. friends, thinking Jesus is merely a great prophet, a great teacher, but not the God of the universe. It's an unsustainable position. Either he is bringing what he has promised or he's not. See, the problem isn't with Jesus' understanding of the woman. The problem is with Simon's understanding of Christ. Jesus knows Simon's heart as Simeon had foretold earlier in, the, in Luke, that, that, that he would know people's hearts and he would cause the rising and the falling of many. And we are seeing right here firsthand the rising of one and the falling of another. Simon is offended at how the kingdom is coming. And so Jesus gives this illustration, this story. He says, someone owes 500 denarii and another 50. Neither can pay. So the moneylender decides to forgive both of them. And then he says, who will love the money lender more: the one who owed 50 or the one who owed 500. And it's almost too simple, too unspiritual of an illustration, isn't it? We want to give some kind of really complicated answer to it. Well, you know, everyone owes something, so it really doesn't matter how much you owe, because all owing puts you into debt. You know, one owing can't produce a, uh, be said to produce a larger debt than another owing. I wonder if Simon thinks it's a trick question. His response, well, the one, I suppose, you know, well, I suppose, uh, I'm just telling you, I've said this a couple weeks ago, don't answer, if Jesus asks you a rhetorical question, don't answer it. Don't answer it. Just wait for him to give the answer. And Jesus says, you judged rightly, Judge rightly, and he says, who, who's revealed their devotion to Jesus? He says to Simon, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time she came in, she has not ceased to kiss to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, and she has anointed my head with this expensive ointment. My feet with this expensive ointment. The way Jesus' kingdom comes is greater because it produces something greater in our own hearts and lives. What does it, why does it do that? It does that because, because the kingdom comes fruitfully in forgiveness granted. Notice what Jesus says. He says, her sin, her sin which are many. You want to say to ourselves, you can't say that, Jesus. Think about this. She's standing right there. She's standing right there. He's having a conversation with Simon right here. And he says, yeah, you know, her sins, which are many. And we in today's age, we'd say, oh, you can't say that. That's not nice. You can't, you can't, uh, Uh, imply that she owes 500 denarii and you only owe 50? You can't say that her sins are worse than another person's sins. All sins are bad, right? All sins cause us to be in debt to God. So we shouldn't say that, except for that Jesus does. You see, only the one who understands their great sin can understand Christ's great forgiveness. When we think that soft-pedaling people's sin will help them to love Jesus, Jesus says that's going to produce the exact opposite effect. When the way in which we present sin is such that Jesus doesn't have to love us very much, Well, what effect is that going to produce in us? You see, we think we are helping God appear more kind and gracious, but really we're stealing from His grace and His glory. That's what we're doing. We're taking from it. If we win people to a less loving Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised that He appears less loving to them. If we win people to a Jesus that doesn't have to be as strong in his forgiveness, we shouldn't be surprised that people think Jesus is weak. There's a reason John was sent first to declare the sinfulness of the people and their need to repent. And then Jesus came with the good news. The vinegar comes first and then the wine. You can't give the good news without the bad news first. We think people know they're sinful, and Simon shows us they don't really. There's a big difference between knowing the Bible says I've sinned and understanding my sin in such a way that it drives me to the feet of Jesus in tears. He says her sins are forgiven for she loved much. Now, don't be confused. He's not saying that her actions have earned her forgiveness. Rather, the point of Jesus' story is that people were forgiven first, and upon realizing the, forgiv- the, uh, realizing the forgiveness that they've received and their great need for it, it produces a response. It's seen in their lives, in their devotion to Christ and their love their humility and their gratitude. Before this woman ever heard him say, "Your sins are forgiven," she understood. She's wisdom's children. She's kingdom's the kingdom's citizen. She was the least and now she's the greatest. See, the kingdom comes fruitfully for those who repent and believe. There is forgiveness of sins that produces devotion to Christ. The kingdom comes gradually capturing hearts by the power of the Spirit and sanctifying them in the world. The kingdom comes unexpectedly turning rebel sinners to children of the Most High God and witnesses to Him. Friends, Jesus is greater than a prophet. He's a king. His hand is heavy, yet his kingdom isn't heavy-handed. His kingdom is greater, and the kingdom comes in greater ways. Let's pray.